What is up, my sweet baby psychos? My name is Catherine Poulis, and welcome back to another brand new episode of Era Unknown, a mystery podcast. Um, if you noticed, if you went online yesterday onto our social medias, or even if you just try to listen to this podcast, you would realize that I didn't upload yesterday on Monday. And that is because we moved to Tuesdays, which is today today for you guys. Um, so all future podcasts from now on will be released on Tuesdays. Um, my weekends have been proving to be more intense and busy than my weekdays. So trying to get a podcast together on the weekend to upload it on Monday was just a little tough. So I'm giving myself an extra day. I promise it's going to be better for me and for you. Everybody's got shit to do Mondays. You know, you don't have time for others and their podcasts. So I understand. So I promise this will be better. And um, yeah, Tuesdays from now on. Um, what else? I hope everybody is staying healthy and safe in this pandemic. I realize I haven't really talked about it on the podcast, but that's because, um, frankly, I'm a little sick of talking about it in every single conversation and regular life is such a fucking nightmare already. So why bring it into our podcast here? You know, even though most of these stories are based in real life, whatever this week, we are going back to the 1800s in Chicago. And I'm excited for this because I'm from Chicago myself And this was a story told to us growing up constantly in school. It inspired the book Devil in the White City, which we had to read cover to cover in history class. Um, Honestly, looking back, I feel like history class was just like murder 101 or like true crime class because basically all of history is just murder. And I feel like I probably would have paid attention more if I just thought of it that way. But, you know, I digress. (laughs) This week, we are diving into the terrible, creepy, disgusting world of serial killer H.H. Holmes. H.H. Holmes was born Herman Webster Mudgett in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, on May 16, 1891. His parents, Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodate Page Price, were both descendants from the very first English immigrants in the area, and they were devout Methodists. Mudgett was his parents' third-born child. He had an older sister, Ellen, an older brother, Arthur, a younger brother, Henry, and a younger sister, Mary. Holmes's father was from a farming family, and at times he worked as a farmer, trader, and house painter. 
They were a pretty well-off family, and Mudgett showed signs of high intelligence from an early age. It was stated by a police officer who knew him as a child that Holmes was very normal, very normal kid, up until two school bullies had forced him into the town's doctor's office, which was one of his biggest fears, and forced him to rub up against a medical skeleton. And this kind of kickstarts this sick fascination with death and the human body, and he goes on to allegedly trap animals and perform surgeries on them, and some accounts of his life even suggest that he killed a childhood playmate, which I couldn't really find any more information on, so take that with a grain of salt. Um, But he exhibited these signs of serial killer behavior, Um, from an early age. In his late teens and early 20s, he moved around a lot. And to me, this, this kind of sets off this huge creep signal, and you'll see why. At the age of 16, Holmes graduated from Phillips Exeter Academy and took teaching jobs in Gilmanton and later in in nearby Alton. On July 4th, 1878, he married Clara Lovering in Alton, and together they had a son, Robert, born on February 3rd, 1880, in Luton, New Hampshire. Holmes enrolled in the University of Vermont in Burlington at age 18, but was dissatisfied with the school and left after only one year. In 1882, he entered the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery and graduated in June 1884 after passing his exams. While enrolled, he worked in the anatomy lab under Professor Herdman, then the chief anatomy instructor. And Holmes had also apprenticed in New Hampshire under Dr. Noam White, a noted advocate of human dissection. It was during these college years that he started pulling insurance scams using stolen corpses. Holmes would steal the cadavers from the university and file fake insurance claims, never getting caught. Years later, when Holmes was suspected of murder, he claimed to be nothing but an insurance fraudster, but did admit to using these cadavers to defraud the life insurance companies. He would even use these bodies for his own human experiments. Some of his other forgeries included a cure for alcoholism, real estate scams, and a machine that claimed to make natural gas from water. So he was making up shit left and right. And so he's got this knowledge of human dissection, medicine, and a history and fraud, and a wife and newborn baby all in just his short 18 years of life, which is crazy. I mean, most of us haven't even gone to college at 18, and he's already done all this crazy shit. So... He's on the fast track to becoming a creep. Um, A lot of housemates of Holmes described him as treating his wife, Clara, very violently. And in 1884, before his graduation, she moved back to New Hampshire with their son and later wrote she knew very little of him afterwards. He then moved to Moores Forks, New York, and a rumor spread that Holmes had been seen with a little boy who later disappeared. Holmes claimed the boy went back to his home in Massachusetts, but no investigation into Holmes ever took place, and he quickly left town after that. He went on to have a few random short jobs. He traveled to Philadelphia, got a job as a keeper at a state hospital, but quit just after a few days. He later took a position at a drugstore in Philadelphia, but while he was working there, 
a boy died after taking medicine that was prescribed by Holmes. And though he denied any involvement in the child's death, he immediately left the city again. So now there are two missing children in two different cities who have connection to Holmes, and he fled each city immediately after. It was then he changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes to avoid the possibility of being exposed by victims of previous scams and possibly being detected by law enforcement investigating these missing children. In late 1886, while still married to Clara, Holmes went on to marry another woman, Myrta Belknap. He tried to file for divorce from Clara a few weeks after marrying Myrta, claiming infidelity on her part. The claims could not be proven, and the suit went nowhere. Surviving paperwork actually indicated she was probably never even aware of the suit, and the divorce was never finalized. It was finally dismissed June 4th, 1891, on the grounds of want of prosecution. So here's where we get to Chicago. Holmes arrives in Chicago in 1886 with his new wife, Marta, and now he begins to use the name H.H. Holmes regularly. Holmes had a daughter with Murda, Lucy Theodate Holmes, who was born on July 4th, 1889 in Englewood, Chicago, Illinois. So wife count is at two and child count is now at two. Holmes lived with Murda and Lucy in Wilmette, Illinois, which is a northern suburb of Chicago, which is coincidentally where my family actually has our, our family business. So I've spent a lot of time around Wilmette, but, uh, Holmes actually spent most of his time in Chicago proper, uh, tending to business. And I'm putting business in air quotes because we all know that it, it wasn't business he was tending to. He came across Holton's Drugstore at the southwest corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street in Englewood. Elizabeth Holton ran the store there because her husband had recently been diagnosed with cancer, So she ended up giving Holmes a job to help out in the store, and he proved to be a hardworking employee, using his knowledge of medicine and his ability to charm everyone he met to secure his position. There were some accounts I found that Holmes actually murdered the couple, claiming they moved to California, but this was revealed to be a myth. The couple remained in Englewood throughout Holmes' life and survived well into the 20th century, though he did manipulate them into giving him their drugstore. So now he owns this drugstore, and he also goes on to purchase the empty lot across the street from the drugstore, where in 1887, construction began on the infamous Murder Castle. The structure was ugly and large, containing more than a hundred rooms and stretching for an entire city block. During construction, he conned architects, steel companies, and furniture suppliers, declining to pay and hiding their materials in hidden rooms he had constructed within the castle's walls, bringing forth many lawsuits. During the construction of the building, Holmes switched builders and architects so frequently so that no one involved actually knew the layout of the building in its entirety. For his mansion, or the murder castle as it comes to be known, H.H. Holmes planned for the first floor to contain an entire block of storefronts he would be able to rent out to the flood of new business opening up in the city. 
1892, he added a third floor, telling investors and suppliers he intended to use it as a hotel and apartments for the upcoming World's Columbian Exposition, though the hotel portion was never actually completed. This left the second floor to be the playground for his victims, filled with trapdoors, mazes, secret chambers, and the especially unlucky ones made it into the basement, which he hid the elaborate horrors for which the H.H. H. Holmes house is now famous. There were hinged walls and false partitions. Some rooms had five doors, others had none. Secret airless chambers hid underneath floorboards, and iron plate-lined walls made the rooms completely soundproof so no one could hear the victim's screams. There was a gallows room, an electric chair room, and a beheading room. All of the doors and some of the steps were connected to an intricate alarm system. Whenever someone stepped into the hall or headed downstairs, a buzzer sounded in Holmes' bedroom alerting him. One room was lined with gas fixtures. Here, Holmes would seal his victims in, flip a switch in an adjacent room, and wait until they asphyxiated. Holmes' own apartment had a trapdoor in the bathroom, which opened to a staircase, which led to a windowless cubicle. In the cubicle, there was a large chute that tunneled down into the basement. He would use these chutes as a way to deliver the bodies to the basement, and once there, he made use of the surgical tables, various poisons, and an array of medical tools to dissect them before selling their organs and bones on the black market and to medical institutions. There was a stretching rack and also large vats filled with corrosive acid and two quicklime pits buried in the floor to dissolve his victims. Also buried in the floor were dozens of human remains, jewelry from Holmes's mistresses, and even a few scraps of clothing belonging to these mistresses as well. There was also a tunnel found running under 63rd Street, leading from the castle, and police found a metal chamber at the end of it, which, upon opening, exploded. After the explosion, a box was found in the room, and Fire Marshal James Kenyon opened it and then was immediately dragged out and carried upstairs for two hours because he was, quote, acting like one demented. Now, I couldn't find anything else on this story. It sounds so interesting, but um, this I just heard this from Murderpedia, so I'm going to give it to them because they always do a really good job researching, and if you've ever gone on Murderpedia, you, you know that they have all of their sources listed and... Um, bunch of articles. And in this case, they had dozens of New York Times articles for this case. So I'm going to give it to them. Um, but this, I wish there was more to the story. It sounds so interesting. But let's move on to his victims because that's always the most important part of these stories is talking about the victims. And the murders that Holmes committed took place in a time span uh, from 1886 to 1894. His victims were mostly women, a large portion of which were Holmes's fiancés, mistresses, or wives. Some victims included men and even children. One of Holmes's early murder victims was his mistress, Julia Smythe. Her and her then-husband, Ned Connor, had moved into Holmes's building, and Connor began working at his pharmacy's jewelry counter. 
After Connor found out about Smythe's affair with Holmes, he quit his job and moved away, leaving Smythe and her daughter Pearl behind. Smythe gained custody of Pearl and remained at the hotel, continuing her relationship with Holmes. It was on Christmas Eve of 1891 that Julia and Pearl disappeared, and Holmes later claimed that she had died during an abortion, though what truly happened to the two was never confirmed. Another likely Holmes lover, Emmeline Sigrande, began working in the building in May 1892 and disappeared that December as well. Another woman who vanished, Edna Van Tassel, is also believed to have been among Holmes's victims. In early 1893, an actress named Minnie Williams moved to Chicago. Holmes claimed to have met her in an employment office, though there were rumors he had met her in Boston years earlier. He offered her a job at the hotel as his personal stenographer, and she accepted. Holmes somehow persuaded Williams to transfer the deed to a property of hers in Fort Worth, Texas, to a man named Alexander Bond, which was actually just one of Holmes's many aliases. In April 1893, Williams transferred the deed, with Holmes serving as the notary. The next month, Holmes and Williams, presenting themselves as man and wife, rented an apartment in Chicago's Lincoln Park. Minnie's sister Annie came to visit, and in July, she wrote to her aunt that she planned to accompany a, quote, brother Harry to Europe. Neither Minnie nor Annie were seen alive after July 5th, 1893, and Minnie's remains were later found in the crematorium in the basement of the castle. While working in the chemical bank building on Dearborn Street, Holmes met and became close friends with a Benjamin Pitzel, a carpenter with a criminal past who was also working in the building. Holmes used Pitzel as his right-hand man for several criminal schemes. A district attorney later described Pitzel as Holmes's tool or his creature. This leads us to the capture and arrest of H.H. Holmes, and this part I'm going to read straight from Murderpedia because they had the most cohesive account of his capture and arrest, so I'm going to read that now. Following the world's fair, with creditors closing in and the economy in a general slump, Holmes left Chicago. He next appeared in Fort Worth, Texas, where he had the inherited property from Minnie. There, he sought to construct a second murder castle, like his Chicago operation. However, he soon abandoned this project, finding the law enforcement climate in Texas inhospitable. He continued to move about the United States and Canada, and while it seems likely that he continued to kill, the only bodies discovered which date from this period are those of his close business associate, Benjamin Pitzel, and three of his children. These were the murders that would put him behind bars. Pitzel was convinced by Holmes to help with an insurance scam. Pitzel had agreed to fake his own death so that his wife could collect on the $10,000 policy, which she was to split with Holmes and a shady attorney. The scheme was to take place in Philadelphia, and Pitzel would pretend to be an inventor under the name B.F. Perry, and then be killed and disfigured in a lab explosion. Holmes was to find an appropriate body to play the role of Pitzel. Little did Pitzel know that Holmes had planned on actually killing him. And he did just that, forcing Pitzel to swallow embalming fluid and then burning his body beyond any easy recognition. Holmes needed a family member to prove that the body was Pitzel in order to collect the money. And this is where Carrie Pitzel and her children come into play. 
Carrie knew about her husband's plan with Holmes, so she sent her second eldest daughter, Alice, to confirm the body was Benjamin. Once Alice had confirmed the body was her father's, Holmes convinced Carrie to send over two more of her five children, Howard and Nellie. Seeing as though Carrie and her youngest child were sick and her eldest daughter was taking care of the children by herself, Holmes said he could take care of the other two children. Holmes then traveled across the country with the children, trying to get the now suspicious police off his tail, and eventually ended up killing the young children. What I'm about to read is a quote directly from Holmes describing how he killed the Pitzel children. Quote, After he'd ceased to breathe, I continued to cut his body into little pieces, and using corn cobs as extra fuel, burned his remains as if they were some inanimate object. This was said by Holmes when he spoke of how he killed Howard Pitzel in Indianapolis, Indiana. Howard's remains were found in the kitchen stove of one of the places that Holmes had resided in with the children for a short time. Next were Alice and Nellie Pitzel, whom he'd brought to a home in Vincent Street in Toronto, Canada. He tricked the young girls into a box and fed in rubber tubing, then asphyxiated them with the gas that he had fed into the tubing and buried them in the basement of the house. While this whole murder spree was happening, Holmes was simultaneously staying in another location with his third wife. Yes, he had another wife, Georgiana Yoke. They married on January 17, 1894 in Denver, Colorado. And she was completely unaware of this entire affair. So now wife count is at three, and he has not gotten a divorce yet. He is legally married to three women. So Frank Geyer, a Philadelphia police detective assigned to investigate Holmes and find the three missing children, found their decomposed bodies of the Pitzel girls in the cellar of the Toronto home. Detective Geyer wrote, quote, The deeper we dug, the more horrible the odor became. And when we reached the depth of three feet, we discovered what appeared to be the bone of a forearm of a human being. Geyer then went to Indianapolis, where Holmes had rented a cottage. Holmes was reported to have visited a local pharmacy to purchase the drugs which he used to kill Howard Pitzel, and a repair shop to sharpen the knives he used to chop up the body before he burned it. The boy's teeth and bits of bone were discovered in the Holmes chimney. In 1894, the police were tipped off by a former cellmate, Marion Hedgepeth, who Holmes had neglected to pay off as promised for his help in providing him with an attorney. Holmes's escapade ended when he was finally arrested in Boston on November 17, 1894, after being tracked there from Philadelphia by the Pinkertons. He was held on an outstanding warrant for horse theft in Texas, as the authorities had little more than suspicions at this point, and Holmes appeared like he might flee the country in the company of his unsuspecting third wife. After the custodian for the castle in Chicago informed police that he was never allowed to clean the upper floors, police began a thorough investigation over the course of the next month at the murder castle, uncovering Holmes's efficient methods of committing murders and then disposing of the corpses. Holmes was put on trial for the murder of Pitzel and confessed, following his conviction, to 27 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto, and six attempted murders. Holmes was paid $7,500 by the Hearst Papers in exchange for this confession. 
He gave various contradictory accounts of his life, initially claiming innocence and later that he was possessed by Satan. His facility for lying had made it difficult for researchers to ascertain any truth to the basis of his statements. On May 7, 1896, Holmes was hanged at the Moya Mensing prison in Philadelphia. Until the moment of his death, Holmes remained calm and amiable, showing very few signs of fear, anxiety, or depression. Holmes' neck didn't even snap immediately. He instead died slowly, twitching for over 15 minutes before being pronounced dead 20 minutes after he was hung. He requested that he be buried in concrete so that no one could ever dig him up and dissect his body as he dissected so many others. This request was granted. So, following his hanging, there were a few other deaths that are of note. On New Year's Eve 1910, Marion Hedgepeth, who had been pardoned for informing on Holmes, was shot and killed by a police officer during a holdup at a Chicago saloon. Then, on March 7, 1914, a story in the Chicago Tribune reported the death of the former caretaker of the murder castle, Pat Quinlan. Quinlan had committed suicide by taking strychnine. His body was found in his bedroom with a note that read, quote, I couldn't sleep. Quinlan's surviving relatives claimed Quinlan had been haunted for several months before his death and suffered from hallucinations. The paper reported that his death meant the mysteries of the Holmes Castle would remain unexplained. The castle itself was mysteriously gutted by fire in August 1895. According to a newspaper clipping from the New York Times, two men were seen entering the back of the building between 8 and 9 p.m. About half an hour later, they were seen exiting the building and rapidly running away. Following several explosions, the castle went up in flames. Afterwards, investigators found a half-empty gas can underneath the back steps of the building. The building survived the fire and remained in use until it was torn down in 1938. The site is occupied currently by the Englewood branch of the United States Postal Service. So now we're getting into a couple theories. Um, in 2019, there were allegations that Holmes had actually escaped execution by having someone else hanged and buried in his place. So the History Channel had a documentary series called American Ripper, and they put forth an investigation into whether H.H. Holmes was possibly also Jack the Ripper. And Holmes' grandson, Jeff Mudgett, actually petitioned the courts to exhume the body in Holmes's grave to match DNA samples of the remains to his own to make sure he was really dead. In late April, digging began at Philadelphia's Holy Cross Cemetery, it actually brought tears to my eyes, and I was trying to figure out, why am I crying for this monster of a man? Mudgett said of finding the tomb for the first time. This exhumation was led by Janet Mong of the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. They first found a fake pine box, which may have been used as a decoy, but a few feet deeper, they discovered a cement sarcophagus. Cracking open the 125 to 130-year-old cement, as you can imagine, is tough work, Mudgett said. Due to his coffin being contained in cement, his body was found not to have decomposed normally. His clothes were almost perfectly preserved, and even his mustache was found to be intact. Mudgett said, quote, Chills went up and down my spine, 
to see that skeleton and that skull with the brain still inside scared the heck out of me, end quote. After two months of DNA analysis, dental records, and DNA testing, it revealed a conclusive link to Jeff Mudgett, proving the remains in the grave were Holmes. Holmes was then reburied. I think it's, it's crazy that his dying wish was to be buried in cement so that he wouldn't be dissected like so many of his victims, and he ended up getting dissected. Um, karma's a bitch. <laughs> While the evidence ended this speculation surrounding one centuries-old theory, Mudgett said it still hadn't proved whether or not his theory that Holmes was also Jack the Ripper is false. There are too many coincidences for this to be another bogus theory, Mudgett said. I know that the evidence is out there to prove my theory, and I'm not going to give up until I find it. Apparently, there were a lot of similarities between H.H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper, Um, In the little research I did into it, um, there was some theories that Jack the Ripper had left London and went to the United States around the same time that H.H. Holmes started killing um, in order to derail the police that were after him. Um, But again, no evidence has been brought forward. later explain. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer, no more than the poet can help the inspiration to sing. As recounted in Eric Larson's book, The Devil in the White City, H.H. Holmes began his two-year-long murder spree at a moment in history where an unprecedented throng of unknown, unaccompanied strangers were flooding the streets of Chicago, looking for a temporary housing. The 1893 Chicago World's Fair was one of American history's most attended cultural events, with millions of people attending over the duration of the fair. And noting the thousands of people who went missing during the World's Fair, some papers suggest that the actual count of Holmes' victims to be well into the 200s. But we'll never know for sure. Thank you guys so much for listening this week. As always, if you would please do us the favor of rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcast, it's the only way that we can actually keep making creepy content for you guys, Um, and it lets other people know that we're a podcast worth listening to, so it would be super appreciated. Um, Also, as always, we put up photos relevant to each episode on our Instagram, so you can follow us um, at Podcast on Twitter at AirUnknownPod, and on Facebook as well. I think on Instagram, I'm going to put up some photos of um, some sketches of the murder castle, of like the layout of it. It's pretty insane. There are like, you can see um, all the rooms and which rooms did what and how it was really like a maze in there. And I'll also put up a photo of Holmes himself um, and whatever else I can find. And as always, I want to hear from you guys. I've been thinking about making like a Facebook group where we can all discuss these cases together and like chat there, but I don't know, not everybody likes Facebook. So if there's a better platform to engage with you guys on, let me know. Um, You can DM me or just email me at airunknownpodcast at gmail.com. And yeah, we're getting into spooky season here, guys. I'm so excited. I have some fun plans for Halloween, so please keep checking back on our socials and keep listening 
for more of this world's crazy mysteries. I love you guys so much. Stay weird. And I will talk to you next week on Tuesday. Have a good one, guys. Bye.